Let's hear God's word from the book of Ruth, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, a close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who was coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of the book of Ruth. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray again for insight, for understanding. As we come to this portion of your word, we pray for that kind of understanding that receives in faith, that humbly applies God's word to our own hearts for comfort, for encouragement, for correction, for guidance. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the end of the book of Ruth, of course, you've got the feeling that we're jumping into the middle of something. So just to make sure everybody remembers what has been going on, 
Naomi and Elimelech, with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, moved to Moab because of a famine in the land of Israel. Malon and Kilion married to Moabite young women, Ruth and Orpah, but then all of the men in the family died. So Naomi set out to return to her ancestral home in Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah in the nation of Israel. Both of her daughters-in-law were going to go with her. She tried to discourage them. She succeeded in discouraging Orpah. She did not succeed in discouraging Ruth. So Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem, but they don't have any resources. They had a place to stay. There was some property in Naomi's name, but she didn't really have access to it. So Ruth went out to glean, to go behind the harvesters and gather up whatever little scraps they missed as they were harvesting the grain from the fields. Well, that led to Ruth meeting Boaz, and Boaz was a relative of Elimelech's, and he was very kind to her, made sure that through her gleaning she could make enough to maintain them. And so then Naomi had the bright idea that they should ask Boaz to do more. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor, had a nocturnal interview with Boaz, where she basically asked Boaz to marry her. Boaz agreed, but there's a wrinkle. There's somebody else who's first in line to redeem Naomi's property and to accept the responsibility of marrying Ruth. So that's where we pick up in chapter 4. Boaz has gone to the gate of the city. You might remember in antiquity, most of the towns, there were some unwalled villages, but most of the bigger towns at least had a wall around them. And of course, if you're going to have a wall, you have to have a door. You have to have a gate in the wall. And the gate was often the biggest and most imposing part of the wall, not just for defensive purposes, but also because people would gather there to do business. So those who had attained a stature in society, a season in life where they weren't very active out in the fields, could still sit in the gate and could help with the transaction of business. They took care that things were done decently and in order. And people relied on their ability to witness things as well as their institutional memory to make sure that things were done properly. So Boaz goes to the gate and he sits down and as suitable people come up to the gate, there was probably a plaza in front of the gate. A lot of times the gate structure was not just a little door, but a whole building that had multiple doors and little rooms with benches and so forth. So somewhere in this whole complex, Boaz sits down where he can see people going by. He calls on appropriate people to sit down until he has 10 elders. And of course, he's also waiting for this other relative. In our translation, he's just called friend. It's something like, hey, you, so-and-so, John Doe. We don't actually know this man's name. But what we do know about him is that he's ahead of Boaz in line. So Boaz makes his preparations. He has the elders there to witness and to make sure that everything is done. He calls this gentleman as he goes by to take a seat and to transact this business. And apparently a larger crowd gathers, people just interested in what's going on, the community observing, especially as people come to realize that something interesting is happening, well, they can take a few minutes before they get out to the fields to be a part of this important event. Now, there's a lot here that we don't 
necessarily understand terribly well because this is not how we transact business most of the time anyway. And some of the customs, some of the habits are a little bit obscure to us. But we can understand well enough that Boaz has assembled who he needs to meet legal requirements and to decide that what they're doing is in order. And I think we do actually have a parallel to that in our experience here at the church because we have a spiritual council. We have elders who gather and we make, I mean, not a huge amount, but we make a fair number of decisions. Now, we have guidelines. We have the Bible, first of all. We have the documents of the church. We have the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. We also have the Constitution, the RCUS Constitution and the Ebenezer Constitution. So we've got all those documents. But I got to tell you, those documents do not tell you exactly what to do in every specific situation. They give you broad principles. They give you general lines. And then it is the job of the elders to read those documents and think about those documents and sometimes discuss those documents at great length and then think about the situation that's been brought before us in one way or another and say, well, in light of these documents, what's the decent and orderly thing to do? What is the right thing to do? And also, and sometimes this takes even more time, what's the right way to do the right thing? So we're familiar with an assembly that deliberates and an assembly that says, oh yes, that was valid, that was okay, that was the right way to do it, and we can proceed to whatever the next step in this process is. Or if people say, nope, we haven't done it right yet, we have to go back to the drawing board and start over. That's why Boaz has these elders. And isn't it interesting that this deliberative assembly, this approach where a group of seasoned people think about situations and apply the law, the Constitution, to this specific situation in front of them, still obtains. This is still how God chooses to govern his people. This is the first line, if you will, of that governance, of that leadership that we need. Now, in our own situation, we have a formal process for recognizing elders. There's qualifications laid down in Scripture. Somebody has to nominate these elders. They have to be voted on at a congregational meeting. And then, of course, they have to be ordained. So we have quite a formal process for identifying who is and who is not an elder, as well as a process for, well, who's currently serving as an elder. This might have been a little less formal. It might have been just community recognition. You see, oh, here's a person who, by his good behavior over a period of time, has earned the respect of the community. That may have been an informal elder, whereas we do it formally, but it's the same principle. Who gets nominated? Who gets voted on? Well, hopefully people who have spent a while with us and by their behavior have won a good reputation. We see that they will be good elders because we can see what their life is like. Now, this exact situation may very well never have arisen before. If you think about it, this is very specific. A father and two sons have died. His widow is left, and she has a substantially younger daughter-in-law, but the substantially younger daughter-in-law is a foreigner. 
which law in the Old Testament covers that specific case? Well, we can talk about the right of redemption from the book of Leviticus. We can talk about leveret marriage from the book of Deuteronomy. But those don't address this specific situation. So that was part of the functioning of Boaz and the elders was to figure out what is the right thing to do and what is the right way to do it. And since there's somebody ahead of Boaz in line, Boaz is not just going to act. He has to give that guy, and we don't know his name, so it's not disrespectful to call him that guy. He has to give that guy a chance. Well, that's what he does. Boaz introduces the subject, and he says that Naomi is selling, or it could be understood as has sold, the piece of land. Now here, the complications of Old Testament law about land are relevant. Ordinarily, the land was sold or was leased more properly for a six-year term at a time. Now, land could sometimes be leased for up to 49 years, but in the year of Jubilee, things would go back. Now, this is, this is just my guess. So if you have a better guess, I'm all ears. But this is my guess as to how this would have worked in this situation. When Elimelech and his family decided to leave Bethlehem, they probably leased their land to somebody. And I would suspect they probably did it for a term of seven years. But how long were they in Moab? Well, we know they were there for at least 10 years. But in the meantime, nobody in Bethlehem has heard from Elimelech or family so if you lease the land for seven years and then the owners disappear, they vanish, they don't come back, what happens? Well, probably whoever was using it keeps using it. So then the family comes back from Moab, but not at the convenient end of a leasing period. So now what do you do? Well, if they have a relative who can get that land back into their possession, put it back into use for them, that would be how Israelite culture would prefer to handle that. So I think that's what's happening here. Boaz wants to bring the land back into the family from whoever has been farming it, whoever's been using it and planting crops, harvesting, and all the rest. But Boaz is not first in line to do that. So he says, well, we're going to get Naomi's land back. Well, Understanding that Naomi is a widow, understanding that then that farmland will come into this fellow's territory, that he'll be able to expand his operation, that sounds like a good deal. He says, I'll redeem it. Well, now Boaz adds the wrinkle. We don't know. The, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how this condition came about. Was it expected that if you redeemed land, you had to marry the widow or the widow's daughter-in-law? Or was that a condition that Naomi was laying down? Was that a condition that Boaz was inventing? We don't know how the condition got created, but however it did, the elders, the deliberative assembly there agreed. So that was that. Well, when this fellow heard that you also had to acquire Ruth, he changed his mind. Now, that didn't sound like such a good deal. Now, what he says is, lest I mar my, my own inheritance. In other words, lest I mess up the lines of succession in my family. Well, there's a couple of ways that could have worked. One, he could have already been married. 
Well, adding another wife is definitely a complication, right? You can understand why people would say no to that proposition. He may not have had a wife, but he might have been concerned that Ruth's Ruth's first child would have been counted as a descendant of Elimelech and Malon. And if he didn't have more children, then everything that belonged to him now, instead of going to his legal descendants in the next generation, would go over to Elimelech's legal descendants in the next generation. So one or both of those factors may have been relevant here, or he may have been concerned about Ruth being a foreigner, Ruth the Moabitess, Boaz calls her. However it was, at that point, he stepped back. And so Boaz steps forward. Boaz is willing to do both parts of this. Boaz is willing to risk whatever danger there was to his own inheritance. Boaz is willing to add Ruth to his household. And so in sign of relinquishing his right to that property, the anonymous individual here takes off his shoe or his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And that was a sort of a symbolic confirmation of the transfer. But the people are around. They've witnessed it. And Boaz says, you are witnesses. And they say, we're witnesses. So now there's a community memory. This happened. Ruth has been acquired by Boaz. The property of Naomi has come under Boaz's control. And that means, of course, that now Boaz is officially, formally, publicly responsible for the maintenance and the well-being of Ruth and Naomi. He has to take care of them now. They have become his problem, his concern. Now, obviously, this is not the way we do business. If In our society, somebody wanted to get married. You wouldn't call together a group of people and say, I'm going to acquire this woman. And they would say, okay, we're witnesses of that. You would do it through a marriage license. And witnesses would sign the marriage license. Our procedures are a little bit different. But we aim at the same thing. And, you know, just as we saw that there's an importance to the deliberative assembly, that God established a pattern that continues to this day, there's also a pattern, a relevant pattern, in what happens here. And I think it's relevant in two ways. It's relevant to marriage and it's relevant to church membership. How is what we're reading here in Ruth relevant to marriage here? Because marriage is not a private affair between two individuals only. Obviously, Boaz and Ruth are concerned in their marriage. Obviously, Ruth consents. Obviously, Boaz consents. Without two parties capable mentally capable of consenting, legally allowed to consent, you cannot have a marriage. But do you need more than the consent of two individuals to establish a marriage? Well, unless you're on a deserted island where those two individuals are the whole of society, yes, you do. Marriage is a public matter. And by that, I don't mean that you have to air all your dirty laundry or whatever. I just mean that the fact that two people are committed to one another, that they are united in holy matrimony is not something private. It's not something we can handle at our own discretion. It is something that does need to be recognized and acknowledged by the society around. Now, depending on the society, 
the procedures for that will be different. There's no paperwork, as far as we know, in the book of Ruth. But what is there instead? There is a community memory. There is a public acknowledgement. There's 10 witnesses, and then with the crowd gathered around, there's more than 10 witnesses. Yes, Boaz and Ruth are married. You'll sometimes run into people who say, well, we're married in our hearts, or we're married in God's eyes, or et cetera. cetera. Okay, are you publicly married? Because that does matter. Now, there can always be some complicating circumstances. We live in a society where marriage licenses are issued for things that aren't marriages. That is a complication that at some point the church will have to think about. We'll have to figure out a way to handle what that does to public recognition of marriage and how the church can go about recognizing marriage under this particular environment. But that doesn't do away with the need for community recognition. Marriage is not a private affair. Marriage is publicly known. Now that also, that pattern though, also applies to church membership. And actually some commentators reading Ruth think that this is one of the big themes in the book of Ruth. Ruth, of course, makes her profession of faith. She tells Naomi that wherever she goes, wherever Naomi goes, Ruth will go. Boaz acknowledges that in that decision, Ruth had come to seek refuge under God's wings. But now, here, Ruth is acknowledged by the community as a part of the community. How is that relevant to church membership? Well, of course, in one sense, whether you are a Christian or not depends on you. Do you believe the gospel? Do you trust Christ for your salvation? Well, that's what it takes to be a Christian. You must seek refuge under the Lord's wings. But at that point, you're converted as an individual. But are you institutionally a Christian? Do you belong to the body of Christ? Well, in principle, but in practice, you need to actually approach a local congregation. You need to get to know them. And they, the elders of that congregation, are the people who are tasked by God with weighing your profession of faith and seeing if it meets the test. So in one sense, it's very unwarranted for people to run around calling themselves Christians if there is no congregation that recognizes their profession of faith. Because this also is not just an individual subjective matter. God did not call us in isolation. He said that he called us in one body. If Christ calls you to salvation, Christ calls you to be part of the church. And if you are not called to be part of the church, then how do you know that you're called to be part of salvation? Those two callings cannot be divided. You're called in one body. So please don't run around calling yourself a Christian if you don't belong to a congregation. That's taking a name that is not yours to take for yourself. God has instituted a community That community has leadership through deliberative assemblies, and the elders are tasked with recognizing 
a profession of faith as legitimate, as valid. They're tasked then with welcoming people publicly and officially into the church. Ruth has a lot to teach us. But there's still one more lesson we need to derive from this. The people who said that they were witnesses also pronounced a blessing on Boaz on the upcoming marriage with Ruth. They were looking forward to what God would do through Ruth and Boaz and through their offspring. Presumably these people didn't know that that would turn into David the king a few generations down the road. Presumably the people who pronounced the blessing didn't know that that would turn into Jesus the Messiah many generations later. But even before we get to that, even before we get to the very end of the book of Ruth, there's a beautiful lesson in this story. Out of his kindness, that key word in the book of Ruth, out of his covenant loyalty, out of his steadfast, unwavering, committed love, Boaz put together the idea of redemption with the idea of marriage. People have been reading the Old Testament for thousands of years, and nobody has yet found where those things would absolutely legally have to be joined together. Nobody has found a basis on which to criticize this anonymous relative who said, no, that's too much, I can't do it. But Boaz joined those two things together because of his kindness. And in doing so, Boaz taught us that there is a tremendous connection between redemption and marriage. When the Lord Jesus Christ redeems us from sin and destruction, from condemnation, he could do less than he did, right? It would be possible for you to be not sent to hell, and yet would you have to be considered the bride of Christ? It would be possible for you to be delivered from sin, have your sins forgiven, and just put back to zero. Like, here, try again. Is that what the Lord does? He goes much beyond that. When Christ redeems us from sin, from condemnation, from destruction, he also joins us to himself. We are not only forgiven. We are not only justified, we are adopted. We are included in the family of God. Assume that God wanted to spare you from condemnation. Did God have to make you his child to pull that off? Assume that Christ wanted just to rescue you from sin. Did that mean he was going to join himself to you in an unbreakable union? Well, that is how God has chosen to save us. That is how Christ chose to redeem. But why? Because that was required? Because that was imposed upon them? Because there was nothing else that they could have done? Because that was the fullness of God's kindness and mercy, because that was the height and depth and width of grace. Because Boaz goes above and beyond in kindness, and in doing so, Boaz is a pale shadow 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, who goes so far above and beyond that our language fails when trying to describe it. You're redeemed in order to be married to Christ. You are made one spirit with him as Ruth and Boaz entered into a one flesh union. That's the depth of love. That's the greatness of God's kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.